This is hell. What the hell happened in Brazil? With government buildings in the nation's capital raided by police, our guest today calls neo-fascists in an attempted coup to overthrow the newly inaugurated president, pres- presidency and government of President Lula da Silva. Some are saying it's a copycat action reminiscent of the January 6th, 2021 siege of the U.S. Capitol by the far right here in the States. Except the Brazilian protest didn't happen on January 6th. It happened on January 8th. It also had fewer participants. It took place when the government buildings were actually closed and empty, not while the government was in session as the January 6th insurgency took place here. And the insurrectionists were happily greeted by military police who seemed to have assisted in the incursion. I mean, Sure, in both the U.S. and Brazil, those attempting a coup were on the farthest of the far right who have feasted on rumors and conspiracy theories for the last several years. And Steve Bannon and his ilk have their fingerprints all over the failed coup in Brazil, as well as the one here in the States. But there are also aspects of the protest in Brazil that are different from what took place in D.C. a couple of years ago. We'll learn what led up to the incursion in and of Brazil's capital buildings, what happened during the incursion, how it ended, and what the squashed coup means for the future of the Lula government and the nation of Brazil when we have the return of contributor to This Is Hell, Brian Muir, editor of Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor at Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telser English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brazil, uh, Brazil, Brian was on the show twice last year, once in June when he was on to talk about the Brazilian army making threats about the upcoming election. He was on again in October, shortly after now President Lula da Silva's victory in the first round of voting, to tell us how the Western media was spinning Lula's victory as a defeat somehow, and a win for incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro, despite losing badly to Lula in that first round. And the Brazilian, he was also on to talk about the Brazilian army's resumption of election threats. Our October conversation with Brian was selected by listeners as one of their favorite interviews to be featured on the show in 2022. And we replayed it during the best of 2022 broadcasts over the holidays. You can find our last eight years of interviews with Brian at thisishell.com. When you search on his last name, Mir, that's M-I-E-R. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. And Brazil Wire uh, online is at brazilwire.com. That's with an S. And Telesur English is at telesurenglish.net. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper, who is in the midst of packing. He's in the midst of getting all of his stuff together so he can move to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then what happens? He starts having dental problems like me. How are you, Sebastian? What's new about you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just a little lighter, I guess. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you lost a filling? Yes, because I lost a filling. I mean, you know how dentists always uh, implore you to floss. Yes. And then you do that. And suddenly the floss gets caught in something. I'm like, okay, let's get this loose. And then it goes, boink, and uh, out comes a filling, which is uh, a thing I do not recommend uh, others to imitate. Um, So you've been not chewing on that side of your face? I have tried to. Um, 
mostly successfully, but then again, there's only been two meals since. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, while preparing the show and everything and setting everything up, my dentist called and said that they have actually an, an opening at two today uh, instead of another dentist that is way further away um, where I would have had to hustle to get there after the show. So now... Well, that's uh, the reason why I was a little, like, out of things when getting Brian on. But uh, my apologies, Brian. That's uh, entirely up to... It is ML- It is also MLK Day, oh, so yeah. I'm like, uh, eh. well, first of all, we, why, why do we have to work today, Chuck? We usually take Martin Luther King Day off, but we've been taking so much time off lately, and we're going to be again next week. I'll tell people about that in a little bit. Uh, so I just didn't want to you know, fall out of the regular routine again, yeah, you know? Yeah, I, I know we usually take off Martin Luther King Day. Yeah, I don't know why we're here either. <laughs> I'm really not too sure either. I had a very uh, productive and relaxing weekend for the first time. Well, I don't know how long. It actually started out pretty bad because I thought for sure I was going to have a tooth extracted, one that I had already had a root canal on part of it, and then uh, I thought there was they were going to restra- uh, extract it, but my dentist said that he's going to do some heroic work and he's going to save the tooth. So I had this intense deep cleaning first thing and then all this drama again around dental stuff like Sebastian, but still... I actually did have a productive and relaxing weekend. I actually had a couple of good nights sleep, of uninterrupted sleep. I had great food, hung out with my non-wife, and somehow I still find time to do something that desperately needed to be done. We started using these studios here above Carrie's Lounge on a regular basis in July of 2019, which was also the last time we actually cleaned either the interview booth that I'm sitting in right now or the control room where the producers run the board during the show. That's right, we had not cleaned either the room Seb is sitting in right now or the room where I am sitting oh, right, for three right. and a half years. Now that you mention it, I, I notice I'm no longer breaking out in hives when I'm sitting in here, so <laughs> that's that's a change. Thanks, I found Chuck. all sorts of weird stuff. A, a whole bunch of headphone jacks, replacement headphone ear cushions, a terabyte drive uh, what of what I hope is a whole bunch of shows that are not currently available online. Now, this is how rubber stamp that I thought was long gone, a coffee mug that was sent in by a listener, all sorts of cables and wires that I've never seen before and have no idea what they go to. I think I found Alex's kid's sketchbook as well as a plastic dinosaur. And for some reason, there's a bag marked Alex Jerry that has f- three pairs of women's earrings inside. At least I think that's what it is. And I finally came to the realization that there is no trash can in the producer's booth. So with my apologies to all the producers here on This Is Hell, I finally got around to cleaning your room. And you now have a waste basket. Sebastian, enjoy. Thank you. Before, I I just thought that the producer's booth just is the trash can. <laughs> so more important than any of that, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell, 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 is what advice that's good for you and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights? Infringement on your rights? Infringement of your rights? On your rights? Of your yeah, rights. Right, right. Of your rights. Of your rights. Okay. So, again, what advice that's good for your, your and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights? There was a new report this weekend about how... Uh, lessening your alcohol intake is good for you no matter how much how much you decrease your amount of alcohol that you're drinking it is good for you to drink less and all I could think of was this question how the government is infringing on my rights
rights to drink because now you know what they're going to do next. They're going to come into my house and they're going to take all my alcohol. Yeah, but only Democrats will do that. <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message us uh, via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a brand new moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you'll get your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is from Forbes magazine, and we know you are probably thinking this is going to suck, but unbelievably, it's actually much worse than you think, and it's much worse for us than it is for you. The story is called 28 Bartenders Share Their Favorite Hangover Remedies, so you would think we will be using this as a source for months to come, um, but, I mean, there, A, there's no like weird Icelandic names in that we can torture Sebastian with who would um, mispronounce them, and uh, B, Sebastian is not going to be with us any longer uh, after, well, next week's show, so... Um, Yes, uh, and anyway, so uh, yeah, we, we can keep milking the same story for months and months of end, uh, but we can't because there's really nothing new in this whole thing, because somehow Forbes has been able to find 28 bartenders who offer 28 hangover cures, and we're only going to be able to get one week out of it. So thanks, Forbes. Yeah. Uh, the only cure of any interest in the article is bitters, but not just bitters in soda water or seltzer or tonic or ginger ale, all of which we mentioned in the past and Forbes mentions in their nearly useless article. However, they do offer bitters on a lemon wedge, which is new to us. Gabriel Maldonado, beverage director at the Wesley in New York City, uh, New York. Obviously. Oh. I like how they always tell you that, yeah, as opposed to that other New York City in Texas. Yeah. Explains that he, quote, tends to stray away from the hair of the dog for remedies. The idea of drinking yet again after a long night can be nauseating. Instead, leaning towards a product that was designed to be a medicinal cure-all. It was not, however, this magical cure, but has made its way behind the bar and is what we call bitters. Simple and easy, a lemon wedge coated lightly in sugar and dashed with Angostura bitters is all you need. Although it could not cure the diseases in the time of its curation, it can relieve the body from a night about town, end quote. And that's this week's Hangover Cure. That makes this week's Hangover Cure bitters on a lemon wedge. Bitters on a lemon wedge. Yeah, who knew? Yeah. Sounds pretty good. And now a word from our sponsors. As we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. Tell us what you think. Send us your guest or topic suggestions or anything you'd like to share via email, Facebook, Twitter. And if you if you do, we'll likely read it on air. You can also send us actual stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, D-E-V-O-N Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. We got a couple of emails from listeners who heard our call-out for new producers, board operators, as well as those who can do remote work. As Sebastian is leaving the Chicago area and Alexander Jerry uh, was supposed to move on from the show nearly a year ago, but thankfully he stuck around and along with Sebastian, Lindsay, Dan, and Richard kept the show rolling while I was unable to be here. If you are interested in joining our team here at This Is Hell, team sounds too Whole Foods. Crew? 
That's family. A, uh, family. <laughs> that sounds awful. Ugh. Staff, that sounds too phallic. The gang, probably not a good idea. Don't want anyone in the neighborhood getting the wrong idea, and there was another killing last night. Uh, the troop, that's too thespian. Whatever we are, if you are interested in joining us as a contributor, that's it, a contributor. If you are interested in contributing to This Is Hell as a board operator, producer, or by doing some remote work, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. And that's exactly what Jeff C. did. Jeff writes, Dear Chuck, this is a great email. As they say, long-time listener, first-time caller. Okay, doesn't start out great, but it gets really great. Well, it at least feels like I've been listening to the show for a long time. The first time I heard uh, tuned into your show was sometime during the early stages of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, a time when I and many others sought to fill any shred of empty psychic space with TikTok, make your own sourdough tutorials, podcasts, etc., so as not to fall into the chasm of dread that was so characteristic of those early end-time days. While my partner sought reprieve through a steady flow of 19th century murder mysteries, I did the political junkie thing and sought a drip feed of social analysis. And while many of the podcasts I was listening to were run by forehead vein-pulsing, spit-projectile-casting leftists, totally reasonable ways to operate in this world, of course, your show was a welcome dose of the daily hellscape without the additional emotional intensity. Now that I think of it, it may have been caused that may have even caused me to shed my compulsory icy grimace during that period, even just for an hour. It certainly does now, especially your seemingly off-the-cuff intros before you tell us why this is hell. Thanks for that. I often used to and sometimes still fall asleep listening to you, your crew, and I guess it's crew, and guests on This Is Hell, so it would be a dream to have the opportunity to be involved in the production of the show in some form. Very clever. Falls asleep and it would be a dream. When I heard your plug for available This Is Hell positions during your recent show, I thought that I ought to send you an email expressing deep interest in applying. I do live in western Massachusetts and as of yet have no plans to move to Chicago, although I was considering an MA program at DePaul for a hot minute. But regardless of geographic constraints, I'm very much available for remote work, particularly for helping with audio editing and any website or social media work that might be called for. I'm a Berkeley dropout, and I assume Jeff C. means the Berkeley School of Music dropout, uh, but do have 15 years of considerable experience with audio production and editing and would love to contribute those skills to your show. In addition to being a musician and producer of all things audio, I am also a current anthropology graduate student, tenant union organizer, and harm reduction advocate, so the prospect of marrying my audio and political sensibilities is especially exciting. Please let me know if you might be available to talk further about this potential opportunity and if it would be all right to send you my resume. I truly love your work and would love to be involved in its continuity. Thanks for making it to the bottom of this unintentionally lengthy email, and I hope to hear back from you sometime in the near future. All the best, Jeff C. So, if you are listening right now, Jeff C., that was an absolutely beautiful, beautifully written email. As I think I've mentioned before, it seems like we got a lot of new one uh, online listeners when the uh, pandemic began about three years ago. However, there were about three or four months at the very beginning of the pandemic when we could not air on WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, our home station, because nobody had access to the station due to safety protocols. In fact, the entire campus was on lockdown. If we had not finished the construction of our studio only five months earlier, 
with the help of you, our listening audience, we would not have been able to do the show when so many of you found and started listening to This Is Hell. It took a few months for the station to set up a way for to air new shows without anyone having to go to the studio or getting on campus. This Is Hell episodes that streamed or were podcasts online were never aired on WNUR. So next week, all week, we will be playing interviews never before aired on our home station, WNUR, as we take the week off to contact people like Jeff C., who has expressed interest in contributing to This Is Hell during our transition to new producers here on the show. So Jeff, look for an email from us, and if you are interested in contributing to This Is Hell, especially as a board operator who can be here at least once a week from 9.30 a.m. until noon, but also if you can do remote work as well, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and everyone else, especially those who listen on WNUR. Next week's shows, it's the lost This Is Hell pandemic interviews. You too can email us as Jeff did, message us via Facebook or DM us via Twitter. And if you do, we will likely read your message on air. Jeff was not the only person who contacted us inquiring about being a bigger part of the show, and we will be sharing what other listeners are saying about the position tomorrow. Coming up on the show, Brian Muir on the far-right incursion into Brazil's Capitol buildings. We will tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll also have a new edition of The Past Inside the Present when uh, producer Sebastian Vupper, who holds a doctorate in history, provides us with the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Here in the States, many of us are taught in some of our earliest history classes that December 7th, 1941, the day of the attacks on Pearl Harbor, which led to World War II, was described by then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a day th- date that will live in infamy, that is, be remembered for something horrible. Apparently, nowadays, there is no shortage of days living in infamy in the United States. There's 9-11, too. And now we have January 6th. Two years and two days following what is often called the U.S. Capitol insurrection, Brazil witnessed one of its own, as the country's congressional building, the Supreme Court, and the presidential palace were invaded with connections to the similar incursion back here in the United States that occurred back in 2021. But there are significant differences as well, like Brazil's justice system wanting to hold their former president accountable for his role in that attack on Brazil's capital and incursion into their government buildings. Here to help us understand what led up to the January 8th capital incursion in Brasilia, explain the incursion itself, to describe what has happened since, and what this and the new Lula presidency means for not only Brazil, but all of South America, Latin America, and the world returning to this is how we are very happy to say Happy New Year to Brian Muir, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Welcome back to This is Hell, Brian. Hey, Chuck, how you doing? Thanks Good. for having me back. So what'd you do for New Year's? I went to the beach with my family and watched fireworks at midnight and drank uh, champagne. No, that sounds pretty good. That sounds very good. Were you celebrating anything in particular? New Year's. <laughs> what about the Lula inauguration that day? Yeah, that was a um, huge... There was just like this incredible sigh of... Re- 
because everyone goes out to the beach on New Year's. I chose not to go to the inauguration because Telesur didn't have the budget. They sent the Spanish team there. I was going to go by bus, but then I was like, you know what? 40 hours each way, <laughs> a lot of work to do, or I could go to the beach with my family. And I was at the metal workers union when Lula turned himself into the police. I visited the vigil in front of his in political imprisonment, his cell in, in, in Curitiba. I translated all the communications from the vigil. I was there when he got out of jail. And it's like, I don't have to do every historic moment with Lula. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I was just happy that it happened. Was there a different feeling, though, on the beach on New Year's Eve? Was yeah, there, there was like this sigh of relief over the whole crowd. I mean, I'm living up in Recife now where like 70% of the population voted for Lula. It was just like this big wave of relief and happiness. So Brazil's capital in Brasilia was attacked last Sunday, January 8th, just prior to that attack. Changes were already taking place in Brazilian politics and leadership, as well as policies following the inauguration of former and now current President Lula da Silva. One of the policy changes, Brian, is, as Telesur reported, the Brazilian government said that the country fully and immediately is to rejoin the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, CELAC, CELAC, a block from which it had left in January 2020 under the administration of former President Jair Bolsonaro. What does returning to CELAC by the Lula presidency, what does that tell you will be different about the Lula presidency from the Bolsonaro administration? The, the, um, Brazil's going to stop, uh, get out of its isolation from the rest of the world and start re-engaging in multipolar, multilateral processes focused in the global south to create counter-hegemonic spaces against northern imperialism you know he's also reopened diplomatic relations with venezuela they're reopening the embassy in venezuela the cuban doctors that were kicked out of the country by bolsonaro you know shortly before a massive pandemic that killed more people per capita than in any other country in the world uh, they've been invited back in a partnership with the pan-american health organization i mean he kicked out ten thousand cuban doctors who had been brought to Brazil to work in areas where Brazilian doctors didn't want to go. In other words, poor neighborhoods and little towns in the countryside. Because doctors like this elite pompous position in Brazil of upper middle class people who all want to live in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, basically. So um, he's talking about establishing a new block of rainforest countries, which would start with Brazil, Congo and Indonesia. So they can have more negotiating power against these predatory uh, corporations, mostly based in the U.S. and Europe, that are ripping down the rainforest. You know, so it's lots of. I mean, it's just symbolic that he rejoined. Uh, it's symbolic of you know what what's going to happen during the next four years in Brazil, which is Brazil back on the world stage as an as a geopolitical actor and a country that pushes for peace. And we're expecting him to try and negotiate peace in Ukraine, for example. So, and you know, he did negotiate successfully a nuclear arms um, deal with Iran, but then the U.S. backpedaled on it. The Obama administration invited him to go to Iran and make a nuclear deal. He made it, and then 
Hillary Clinton got furious. Obama got upset because it kind of like subverted his reputation as being this master uh, diplomat or something. And they ended up really mad at Lula over it. But, um, you know, that's neither here nor there. A lot of positive things are going to be happening in Brazil for the next four years, not least of which, which benefits the whole world, is stopping the genocide against indigenous peoples and the illegal mining and logging that's going on on indigenous lands, which make up about um, 25, 30 percent of the remaining rainforests in Brazil. So uh, was sending Cuban doctors back to Cuba during a health crisis, was that politically popular amongst Bolsonaro's supporters? Did that work in getting him any more support from his own uh, from his own people? Because I don't really understand yeah. if that I mean, I just I'm it was just... before the pandemic. OK, so. Oh, all right. So this wasn't during the pandemic. No, it was it was the right after he took office, like a year before the pandemic. It just affected Brazil during the pandemic. I know? see. I see what you're saying. So there was a doctor shortage. So how how is CELAC though? How is that any different from the Organization of American States, which has 35 <laughs> members, including I know that's why I'm asking you, including Cuba and Nicaragua, uh, although Cuba is not allowed to participate despite being a member, which is a weird asterisk to see next to it on a page about the Organization of American States that Cuba is a member but is not allowed to participate. Not much of a membership really. So how is CELAC any different? from the Organization of American States? The Organization of American States is really just the U.S. I mean, they fund 70% of it or something, 65% of it. It's just a puppet organization for the U.S. CELAC is more autonomous and supports the idea of sovereignty in Latin America and the Caribbean. That's the main difference. It was started by Hugo Chavez as well, so... It has its leftist credentials. So do you... You can't accuse it of being neoliberal or something. Right. So do you believe this return to the world, as Lula calls it, uh, do you think that played a role in the attacks on the Capitol in Brasilia on January 8th? Do you believe the far-right framing of globalism played a role in those attacks? Uh, part, it's part of the narrative, you know, uh, this rehashed kind of like Cold War, Lula is a communist you know, kind of stuff. But it was mainly an attempt to grab power, to hold on to power with ample support from Bannon's international fascist network and other Robert Mercer-style actors that have been coming back and forth and giving all these tips and advice to Bolsonaro's sons, especially Eduardo, based on total ignorance of Brazil and Brazilian law. So some of the advice they took is going to get them in big trouble because Brazil doesn't have the same laws as, as the United States. Thank God. You know, I mean, there's this idea of a perfect example of American exceptionalism is this idea that so many people have, even people, good friends of mine who consider themselves to be leftists and stuff, that there's something inherently superior about the United States conception of, you know, freedom of expression than in other countries around the world. Remembering that, you know, and, and something about the U.S. Constitution that, that makes it so special. The U.S. Constitution is so much more important than the other constitutions around the world. I mean, this is an old document. It's almost like, some of it's almost like New Testament level, Old Testament level interpretation of things that no longer apply at all. And 
the fact of the matter is that since the U.S. first drafted its wonderful constitution that guaranteed all of these through the Bill of Rights, human rights only to white male property owners, with African-Americans only getting the right full guaranteed right to vote like in the 1960s and apartheid only officially ended in the 70s, even though the Chicago public school system still looks like it has some kind of apartheid thing going on. You know, other countries have developed constitutions that are a little bit more advanced, especially countries that had major problems with fascism in the 1930s, like Germany and like Brazil, which had the largest Nazi party outside of Europe and the largest Nazi, uh, the, one of the largest Nazi demonstrations in the world, because only German citizens were allowed to join the Brazilian Nazi party, but they had an indigenous fascist movement called integralism, which brought, you know, which attempted a coup d'etat in 1937. And so when, after the integralist influenced military dictatorship, in which they tortured women by sticking rats up their vaginas, they tortured children in front of their parents, you know, they killed a, a one-year-old baby at one point, they, they did all kinds of disgusting things that above and beyond the 8,000 people who were killed and the tens of thousands who were tortured, when they started drafting the Constitution in 1988, they decided to adapt a more modern version of human rights in that there's no such thing as an absolute human right. There's no such thing as free speech absolutism that's promoted by the Cato Institute, billionaires, you know, like Glenn, uh, millionaires like Glenn Greenwald to defend Nazis. No, in Brazil, as in Germany, it's illegal to be a Nazi. Nazis don't have free speech rights. And the reason for that is simple, because Brazil has adapted a concept of human rights in which um, there has to be harmony between the rights. What that means is that no right can be treated in such an absolute fashion that it's used to deny other human rights that are equally important, like the right for democracy. So uh, the right for democracy is built on, it's built on having free and fair elections. If you're using speech to delegitimize a free and fair election or to cause a, uh, a coup or to clamor for the return to a fascist military coup, which is what these people were doing um, as they invaded these empty government buildings on January 8th, that's not legal in Brazil. It doesn't matter if you're saying this on social media or whatever, like you can go to jail for that. And so now there's this massive campaign from the Robert Mercer type far-right actors in the United States and in other countries around the world, the fascist international or whatever you want to call it, that uh, the, the left wing government in Brazil has committed one of the two cardinal sins that Americans always attack every left wing government that's ever taken power in Latin America over. Either one, you're neoliberal as the uh, 38 consecutive articles at the time and Jacobin during the coup period against Dilma Rousseff used to argue about the Workers' Party's governments uh, from 2003 to 2016. Neoliberal, you're not a real leftist, you make compromises. That's one way they attack left governments. I want to add that Jacobin's coverage is really good right now. I'm just criticizing a specific time period in their coverage and using it as an example of things that appeared all over 
you know, left so-called leftist publications in the in the U.S. As we talked about at the time, you know, there was this big wave of like, oh, uh, the PT are corrupt. They're neoliberal. They compromise when they're liberal. The other way that they label Latin American left governments is that they're authoritarian. And so now there's this whole drive because for the simple reason that a coup d'etat just attempt just took place and the government is using the rule of law to arrest people who participated and coordinated this coup, they're being attacked as authoritarian now, you know? So there's no middle ground. There's no U.S. definition of a good country, left country in Latin America in the mainstream, right? Mainstream, you know, left or, or right or whatever. There's no, that middle ground's never defined. You're either neoliberal or, or, or you're authoritarian. So on the one hand, you have some Trotskyist academic types, pro-regime change, Ned associated types saying that, oh, this government's not going to be really leftist. It's going to be neoliberal. And at the other hand, you have this massive publicity campaign led by people like um, uh, Matthew Tyremond, who's an employee of Robert Mercer, and Steve Bannon and, and Jason Miller and these people that, you know, Lula is an authoritarian now. He's denying the human rights of people who tried to overthrow the democratic rule of law to bring back a military government that used to use rape as a torture method, you know, which is ironic because if these people who had been arrested and they arrested a lot of people after this, uh, this attempted terrorist attack on government institutions, if they had been arrested during the dictatorship, they'd all, you know, basically have their genitalia hooked up to car batteries right now and things like that. These people are like even allowed to use their smartphones still where they're being, you know, in jail. They're, they're being fed. They're not being cut off from visitation or not getting their phone call or something like that. Their rights are being fully respected in accordance with, you know, UN guidelines for how you should treat prisoners. You know, so that's basically, it's this thing about like, the U.S. has to export its model of free speech, of gun rights, and all these other things from our from the U.S. Constitution to other countries around the world. That's just really arrogant and uh, reeks of American exceptionalism. I think at this point, the U.S. should stop and look around and think, what is wrong with our conception of free speech rights that we can have something like QAnon, that we can have... Uh, lunatics shooting up schools every week, you know, uh, white supremacists shooting up churches and things like that. What, what's wrong with the, with the free speech situation in the U.S. right now? Because this idea that, like, I'm morally compelled to defend Nazis, because if I don't have to defend the Nazis, oh, my God, then I'm not defending my own free speech rights. That's just a mind-stopping cliché. You know, or this other idea that, like, if we don't defend the Nazis, it's always going to come back worse to the left. History doesn't really uphold that that well anymore, right? Like, why, why, if I don't try to crush Nazis like I should and defend them instead, will that be better for the left? Since their whole goal is to destroy every kind of human right. 
So do do these limits on free speech? Granted, and, and, and I don't want to say that it's necessarily a limit, uh, but this attempt to not allow the weaponization of one right to undermine another right. When it comes to free speech in Brazil, in in any way does that affect? your reporting and the and what you can and cannot say when you're doing your writing or when you're doing any broadcasting? Well, what it would mean is that if we're talking about democracy, if I did a big report saying that there had been voter fraud committed with the electronic voting machines, that the electronic voting machines had been defrauded after an election to delegitimize the new government, and I didn't provide any evidence of that. I could get fined or something, or, or um, maybe even had my social media account temporarily pulled down because I was lying about the democratic rule of law. And I think that's fine. Like what's wrong with journalists, you know, having to use sources and, and you know, cite their sources and information. But it's not something that would affect me normally unrelated to an election unless I was just absolutely lying. Like, you don't have the right to lie to, you know, to to defame someone through lies. I can't say, for example, so-and-so is a child molester without any evidence or anything like that. You could get in trouble for that in Brazil, although punitive damages for slander are very low compared to the U.S. You know, but even so, there's there's things like that. Like you can't it basically it's not it's not a limit of freedom of expression unless that those words are used to undermine another human right. For example, if I if I wrote an article saying why uh homosexuals lgbt community are exterminating the human race which is something that a fascist predecessor of bolsonaro used to say you know if i wrote an article about that i could get in trouble because it's it's um not based in any kind of factual basis whatsoever and it infringes on the rights of some other citizens of brazil so what is missed when the media here in the States doesn't report on the January 8th incursion in Brasilia, on the link between that incursion in Brazil and people here in the States like Steve Bannon? Steve Bannon, when I have seen any reporting on this, which isn't that much reporting, but whenever I have seen any reporting on this, I have not heard Steve Bannon's name come up. What do we miss in our understanding of that insurrection on January 8th in Brazil, of the insurrection on January 6th, when we do not uh, have reported to us the links between the two and groups like those headed by Steve Bannon? Chuck, I actually think uh, surprisingly right, and I don't know why. I think I know why, but it seems like the mainstream media reporting is doing a pretty good job on pointing out these connections right now. There's a New York Times article about how the big lie narrative is being exported to Brazil. You know, I've seen I've seen articles mentioning this, first of all. So uh, surprisingly, because for the last eight years, most of our interviews have been around you asking me a question about New York Times coverage of Brazil and me blowing my top <laughs> at this point. It's one of my favorite hobbies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I actually think that 
there's a reason that the Democratic Party needs Lula right now, you know, in a bizarre turn of events, because as I've talked about over and over on the show, they were involved, the U.S. Department of Justice in the Obama administration was involved in starting this entire mess to begin with through the Department of Justice and SEC's partnership in the Operation Car Wash Lava Jato investigation. So I think now it's specifically because of this relationship between the Bolsonaros, because Bolsonaro shot himself in the foot like a fool by taking sides in a political argument in the United States that had absolutely nothing to do with him, it became impossible for the United for the Democratic, you know, for the Biden administration to work with him. When Biden first took office, he sent his CIA director down to meet with Bolsonaro. He sent State Department people down. Jake Sullivan came down. And they're like, yeah, we want to work with you. We think we can do some good stuff, you know, like um, taking down Venezuela or whatever. And uh, uh, Bolsonaro refused. He was the last major world leader to recognize Biden's electoral victory, which directly connects to this whole fiasco that happened on January 8th here. You know, like he brought fully into the big lie narrative. And I think it got to a point where the Democrats were like, we can't have someone this close to Trump and and Bannon and, and these people in office in the second biggest and richest country in the Western Hemisphere in terms of population and GDP, you know, so like uh, not that there's this made there's ever been this major love affair between the Brazilian Workers Party and the uh, Democrats. They've always liked the PSDB party, Fernando Henrique Cardoso and this and kind of stuff. But at this point, they kind of need Lula down there. And this is why I was so Heartwarming to see so many different countries and leaders of so many different countries that are at odds with each other around the world all get behind Lula after this fiasco and offer their support because, you know, Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, United States, France, Nicaragua, all these countries that like, I mean, like even Chuck, even on the inauguration day, both Russia and the U.S. sent extra security. That's why these people didn't try any January 6th style thing because they didn't have the, not just because of that, but they weren't strong enough. Also because there were 300,000 Lula supporters there. If you look at this group of fascists who, who tried, who occupied these empty buildings on Sunday during vacation month during the, in the empty downtown of Brasilia, it was only about 10,000 of them. There were 300,000 Lula supporters. And of those 10,000, that were engaged in this after they arrested 1200 of them and started going through and seeing who they were they immediately released like 300 homeless people who had been paid to flesh out the crowd so there's no way they could have done it if people were there right but but anyway Wow. I, uh, so it so uh, that's one of the one of the other differences about this is that they went on a day not that when Congress was in session, not when they were certifying the vote of, for electors like they did here in the United States. They showed up in Brazil on a day that was a holiday that <laughs> there was no action, no government a- activities taking place whatsoever. Another big difference between what happened on January sixth of twenty twenty one and what happened on January twenty eighth or January eighth of twenty twenty three. We are speaking with Brian Muir, editor. At 
contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor at Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur, English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. You tweeted about the protesters invading Capitol buildings. They, you uh, write that they were too weak to try it on Inauguration Day, but Bolsonaro supporters are taking advantage of a day when all the government buildings are closed to hold a Trump-inspired Capitol invasion with apparent cooperation from the Bolsonaro-aligned local governor and his police. What does waiting until all of the buildings, uh, government buildings are being closed, what does that reveal to you about the invaders in this insurrection? What does that tell you? What does it reveal about this movement in Brazil when they have to wait until government buildings are closed to invade them? First of all, they don't really have the capacity to mobilize as many people as they pretend to. You know, in every case... Now we're, in, you know, investigating. Um, all of this stuff was financed from above. I mean, even when I was there in this big, there were like 100,000 people on Independence Day in 2021, September 7th. I think you interviewed me about that at the time. And I went and covered it undercover, you know, because I'm a public figure in Brazil. And if they had found out it was me, I could, probably could have gotten beaten up as I was threatened, I was actually threatened to be lynched the following day just because they thought I might be working for a different newspaper. Um, I went undercover and I discovered like a third of the people there were just there because they had gotten free vacation to Brasilia. They were from poor rural areas in the Midwest, this farm country. It's a very conservative part of Brazil where Brasilia is located. Like the, these people, my the hotel I was in was full of Bolsonaro people and dressed in yellow and uh, Brazilian football team jerseys and whatever. And like one couple said, can you help us? Uh, We've never been in an elevator before. What do we have to do to get to our floor? And then another guy was like, he couldn't, he asked me for help using a vending machine to buy a Coca-Cola. It's like, how does this machine work? You know, so I realized a lot of those people were just, Maybe they got a little bit of money, but they also like, oh, do you want a free, let's go on a free vacation. We'll put you in a nice hotel, you know. So we see that a lot of it was financed from this group of businessmen who adopted this far-right posture in a way um, to advance their interests with the Bolsonaro administration. And many of them, their business interests are in the Amazon region, which is being ripped down at was being ripped down at record pace. So like, I don't know if you saw in the news, there was an attempted terrorist attack on the airport on Christmas Eve. This guy was arrested because he had typed, he had um, fastened a detonator to a kerosene truck that was, you know, one of these trucks, I don't know, that uh, that belonged to the airport. He was going to try and set it off on a very busy night, Christmas Eve, when everyone was leaving town. Um, it turned out that he was the owner of a gas station chain in the five Amazon states and that most of his gas stations were located in these areas where they're building new roads because they're ripping down the moat, burning up the most of the forest. And so he had a vested interest in the continuation of deforestation. And you see a lot of like um, truck company owners who are shipping logs out of the Amazon and 
uh, working with the, uh, the soy agribusiness magnets who are building soy plantations in the Amazon to, to supply companies like Cargill with. Cargill was cited by Greenpeace as one of as the main proponent of Amazon deforestation a few years ago for building these massive soy terminals in the middle of the jungle on rivers, you know, where they haven't even ripped things down yet, just knowing it's going to get ripped down. So we see that if they, they started cutting off the financing on January 1st, by the two days before the, and, and with Lula taking power and with Bolsonaro fleeing to Florida, like most corrupt politicians in Latin America do when they know they're about to get arrested, his popularity, which had been artificially built up using camera analytica style big data targeting tactics on the eve of the election to 49%, it had already dropped to 37%. And then the Monday after the attempted coup, uh, it had dropped to 21%. So what we're looking at right now is we're kind of like back to square one in Brazil. Since I first moved here in 1991, I feel like informally from my own comings and goings and participation in this society that it's always been about 15 to 20% fascist. Um, and we're back to where we were. The country is still about 15 to 20% fascist. That's a lot of fascists, you know, but it's not like, this is one thing that's I think has been portrayed in a very misleading fashion in the Northern media, that there's this kind of like massive polarized society divided 50-50 like the United States. And it's really not like that here. I mean, Lula's already, people were saying, how is he going to govern? He's only, his coalition only has 22% of, Congress, but it's a multi-party system. He's already gained control of Congress. He passed a constitutional amendment before he even took office. So what happens in Brazil is normally 60% uh, of the Congress, they just switch sides and back whoever is in power. It would be like, for example, Biden takes power in the US and all of a sudden 30 or 40% of the Republican Party switches to the Democratic Party in Congress and the Senate. So um, he's his mandate to govern is very strong. It's not comparable with Biden in the US really. Uh, but because this thing looks so much like January 6th, people are making all of these comparisons between the context in Brazil and the US that some of them work, some of them don't, you know? So now there's talk about the possible extradition of Jair Bolsonaro from Florida to back to Brazil so he can face justice. Uh, you stated on From the South that you believe the incursion in the capital strengthens Lula's position as even Bolsonaro's supporters were turning against the former president following the capital incursion. You even said there was a desire by the government to prosecute everyone involved in the failed coup all the way up to the Bolsonaro family. So just so people understand, how do you see the Bolsonaro family involved in the attempted coup on January 8th? After all, Jair wasn't even in the country at the time. Yeah. Well, let's start with the fact that Eduardo Bolsonaro, who's the main conduit between his dad and these far-right scumbags in the U.S. and also in Germany and other countries in the, around the world that, that have fascists, Let's not forget that he was a participant in the January 5th War Council meeting in Washington, D.C. with the My Pillow guy, Giuliani, and all those other people. So the relationship's really close. Uh, Bolsonaro fleeing 
to escape prosecution because he's he knows he's going to have all these warrants out. He's already got, you know, he's already got a warrant out for for questioning for some of the crimes he committed during the pandemic, including uh, fraud in the acquisition of useless hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. Um, a lot of people are saying it also just looks like an alibi because now this is a, this is interesting. His justice minister, Anderson Torres, uh, was one of Bolsonaro's only cabinet members who didn't recognize the result of Lula's election. And as justice minister, you're in charge of like the the Brazilian equivalent of the FBI, the Federal Highway Police, intelligence apparatuses, and things like that. Um, he was one of the most hardcore Bolsonaro allies. On January 2nd, he was appointed as security chief of Brasilia, which is a kind of a state. It's a federal district, but as a governor. The governor of Brasilia is also one of Bolsonaro's strongest allies. Two days after he, was, he became security chief of Brasilia, he also flew up to Orlando, Florida, where he met with Bolsonaro, right? And so when the the shit started going down on the 8th, everyone was like, where's the security secretary? What's, I mean, he's the guy, as state security secretary, you're in charge of the military police. Like, why aren't the military police doing anything? Where's the security secretary? Oh, he's, in, he's also in Orlando, Florida, right? So basically, as the governor, you know, had his military police do the turtle game of pretending to act like they were doing something much like the three stooges at a construction site or something, you know, like walking around in lines, but not, not arresting anybody or like throwing tear grass grenades where there weren't any people. Um, and just saying, Oh, we can't control it. We can't control it. Um, after about three hours of that, Lula issued a decree. He was in another state at a disaster site, visiting victims of mudslides. And he said, okay, well, the federal government's taking over the security apparatus of Brasilia. Um, we're issuing an arrest warrant for Anderson Torres. Oh, he, Anderson Torres had already been fired, too. The governor's like, well, I'm firing my security chief. I didn't know he was in Florida, blah, 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 to protect his you know, hide. And so they issued an arrest warrant for him. Then 20 minutes after Lula issued the decree, all of the government buildings had been cleared out by federal police working with the local civil police, showing that if a police force had been doing its job, they never would have gotten in in the first place. And of course, since one third of all these clowns are streamers, we now have this mountain of evidence of, um, you know, those military police officers that day, like taking selfies with the terrorists, taking uh, patting them on the back, hugging them, opening doors for them. So we know that was all planned. And so then uh, they removed the governor from office for 90 days pending investigation. He's certainly going to jail as well. They raided the house of this guy, Anderson Torres, and in it, they found detailed plans on how to have a coup uh, connected to a kind of capital incursion type event which are remarkably similar to what Lieutenant General Michael T. Flynn 
Trump's former security advisor, um, said on Newsmax, Newsmax and also in closed-door meetings with Donald Trump as a suggestion on how they could maintain power if Biden won the election, which was um, declare martial law and deploy the military to rerun the election, right? So he had all these notes, like they were, they were seriously debating whether Bolsonaro should apply martial law or not, probably around the time of that, that terrorist attack on the airport was thwarted. And it looks like they had they had thought that uh, with the military police unable to um, stop the incursion, Lula might call a state of an emergency and put the military on the um, streets. And they were hoping that there were enough people in the military on board with Bolsonaro that this would trigger a full-fledged military coup. It was part of a tactic. And as... This was all going on, on you know, in the Capitol. They they blew up. They a bomb blew off in an oil refinery, and one of the electrical transmission towers in the largest uh, electric plant in Latin America in Itaipu was knocked over. So it was actually kind of like some kind of like military tactics. But what happened is Lula very quickly got the governors on board, even enemy governors who were aligned with Bolsonaro, and they all put their military police on the street to make sure that nothing else would happen beyond that, um, immediately quashing any attempts at road closings and things like that, because they had just seen what had happened to the governor of, of Brasilia, and they knew they were in very close danger of being removed from office as well. So it failed, but you can see the... Um, but you know, in the aftermath, I'm sure they're going to try to capitalize on it in the same way that um, the Trump people have been capitalizing off of January 6th, using it as a way to delegitimize the, the new president's mandate and to weaken support and give this idea that the entire country isn't behind him, that he's not democratic, that he's being overly harsh on these schmucks these crazy people, you know, who couldn't possibly have really been trying to have a coup. It was just a protest, you know, even though in the case of Brasilia, they broke into the intelligence offices and stole all of their weapons, knowing exactly where they were stored and stole a bunch of computers and Intel documents and stuff like that. So we know it wasn't the spontaneous thing that, you know, Bannon is Bannon's people are instructing Bolsonaro to pretend it was down here. So you describe the people who were involved in this incursion as neo-fascists. You also point out how they are just like the those on the far right here in the United States. They're all very invested in conspiracy theories and rumors. For instance, there were uh, people who were camped out outside of the Capitol buildings in Brasilia uh, be- ever since Lula was elected, believing a conspiracy theory that on Inauguration Day or shortly after Inauguration Day, he was going to be overthrown. That was a conspiracy theory that they believed in. That's why they were there. But of course, that did not happen. And when conspiracy theories, generally when they don't happen, often those people who believe in those consi- conspiracy theories become violent. So, so Brian, why do you think conspiracy theories and rumors are so important to these groups of people you describe as neo-fascists? Why do they, why do they need conspiracy theories and rumors to depend upon for their political ideology? Well, first of all, I'd like to distinguish between the January 6th 
protesters and January 8th protesters in terms of fascism, because, you know, there's this whole narrative pushed by people like Glenn Greenwald and others in the U.S. that you can't really call those people fascists. You know, they were just working class people fed up with the government, not that smart, whatever. These people were actively trying to impose a dictatorship, a military dictatorship. That's fascism, right? Like the, the goal, I mean, you could say the goal on January 6th was to keep Trump in power. Great. And he's got fascist tendencies. But the U.S. under Trump was not a fascist government. It did some fascist things, but it wasn't fascism. And he didn't shut down the Supreme Court or anything, which is what um, the, the coup, the pushes, I guess I could say, were you know, planning to do to shut down the Supreme Court and the Congress. So there's that difference. But in terms of conspiracy theory type things, remembering that like the term conspiracy theory was created by the CIA to delegitimize a lot of talk about actual conspiracies and conspiracies do happen. And, you know, this thing that happened on January 8th was the result of conspiracy. But baseless conspiracy theories are a kind of psyop right they're like it's like psychological it's the same thing that cults do and some religious sects do which is that there's this alternative explanation for everything that you're uh, lucky enough to understand that separates you from the rest of them and so it's a way of controlling people i think you know i mean i'm not an expert on crowd psychology and psyop and this kind of stuff but in this case, it's it's definitely a kind of manipulation. And um, for the record, Chuck, there is no evidence that um, the guy purporting to be Lula right now, who actually has 10 fingers, is a person in a rubber mask, which is what hundreds of thousands of people believe now. Because you can get people, if you can convince people that the earth is flat, you can get them to believe just about anything, right? Yes. You know, I was watching Lula speak the other day, and for a moment he turned into a reptile and then turned back into Lula. So I'm completely on board with your <laughs> entire theory there. Brian, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Brian Muir, editor and contributor to You Have Led, uh, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor at Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, co-host on Brazil 24-7. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. You can find out more about Brazil Wire at brazilwire.com. That's with an S, brazilwire.com. And Telesur English is at telesurenglish.net. One last question for you, Brian. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So what is Lula's current relationship with the Brazilian military? And what is the likelihood there will be another coup attempt it should we be concerned that the military may decide to overthrow the lula presidency um there's some problems in the military but the big message from january 8th is they sided with the lula government there were some rogue officers who were trying to implement a coup if it have to be purged from the military 
The fact of the matter is Brazil is a country, unlike the United States, that's had several military coups. Um, there was one in the 1930s as well. Um, there's never been a military coup that wasn't supported and pretty much ordered by the national bourgeoisie. And the national bourgeoisie has gotten tired with Bolsonaro and Bolsonarism because they've started losing money from him. And so um, it's pretty clear that there won't be an actual serious military coup in Brazil, at least for the next you know couple of years. However, there's going to be probably some more terrorism because that's what weak people do, weak political forces do when they don't have power to do a traditional takeover or win an election or, or things like that. Well, on that note, we will be speaking with you later on this year, Brian. Enjoy all of 2023. Happy New Year. Great to hear your voice again. And uh, we'll be following you on Twitter, as we always do, as well as on Facebook, to see what you're posting, because uh, you are one of the only people who's giving us exactly what is happening on the ground in Brazil. So thank you very much, and I truly appreciate all the support you've shown This Is Hell over the years, sir. Thanks, and a happy 2023 to you. And to all the listeners, especially people in my hometown of Chicago. Right. And I'll add Grand Rapids, Michigan there for, for the Michigan people. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Brian. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. If you just learned something from Brian Muir like I did, or if Brian helped you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. at patreon.com slash thisishell. When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, you not only get a special code word giving you a discount on all our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online on last week's Patreon podcast. I offered my recap, a review of what happened during that week's first full week of new live This Is Hell episodes for the year of 2023. And what a week it was. First, we learned not to have schadenfreude to enjoy the misfortune of investors who are duped and are currently being ripped off by the scam that is crypto. When we imagine all those who lost their money were crypto bros who can afford it, the crypto scam doesn't seem so bad. But when we realize a lot of the un and underbanked working class who were lied to by podcasters and YouTubers who claim to be crypto experts but were secretly being paid by crypto firms to spread crypto lies... I mean, the whole when you realize that's who the real victims were, it's not like it was just an innocent scam. But there's a lot that whole story says about the lies perpetrated by corporate media as well as those thoroughly monetized by people who post on social media. Speaking of lies, after talking crypto last week, we were reminded about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and that the U.S. and the West believe revealing lies about war crimes, war crimes kept secret by the military and Western governments, that revealing those lies is actually worse than the actual war crimes themselves. It was yet another lesson on how the so-called democratic nations are far from being democratic by criminalizing journalism and the pursuit of truth. We also were reminded by WikiLeaks of what President Eisenhower warned us about in his farewell speech. Specifically, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought 
or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist, Eisenhower said. That warning, of course, went unheeded in the military-industrial complex, which also include the words intelligence and congressional complex. And now we have a government and uh, powers that keep deadly secrets and imprison those who actually reveal the secrets. And we also played an interview from right around a year after the thoroughly misleading named USA Patriot Act, which is actually an acronym that stands for something that I argue is not only very pro or anti-USA, but it's also anti-patriotic. Well, that was made law about a year earlier. On Patreon last week, we shared our November 20, 2002 conversation with writer, legal editor, and law professor Chuck Michaels, who had just posted a two-part story on the USA Patriot Act at Truthout. Chuck was also the author of the first definitive book on the Patriot Act, No Greater Threat, America After September 11, and the Rise of a National Security State. But the only way you can hear me, my take on our first week of shows for 2023, and a talk on how the USA Patriot Act has led to the institutionalization of a national security state in the U.S. of A., is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what advice that's good for your and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights? Uh, I really like this question from hell, and I appreciate you coming up with the basic premise for it and all of our staff for uh, helping in the writing of it. Yeah, but apparently the listeners don't like it uh, because we only have three responses so far on Facebook. Come on, people! (laughs) That's Uh, a good one. uh, John T. says, a diet that will cause me to produce less methane. All right. Uh, no normal nomad. Um, I'm pretty sure that's okay to read that name out in full. Um, says wear your effing mask. Only he didn't write effing. Okay. Um, they didn't write effing. I mean, who knows? Anyway. Yes. Uh, Cody K writes, how can I properly compensate if I don't buy the most fuel inefficient lift a truck and roll coal all around the suburbs? Exactly. Yeah. How can you participate yeah. without doing that? The person with our favorite answer again wins uh, any piece of our This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we're announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And it's now time for Dr. Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present when Sebastian, who has a Ph.D. in history, gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Sebastian, take it away. The past inside the present. So today is MLK Day, and to honor this occasion, I dug up one of my old lectures, Uh, but not on MLK or even the civil rights movement. No, today I'm going back to the very beginning. So this is, I mean, I I guess this is kind of a foreshadowing of, um, I guess, February and Black History Month. Um, So today I want to talk about why are African Americans, why are black people in the Americas in the first place? Um... And yeah, as I said, come February, in honor of Black History Month, I'll see if I can give you, dear listeners, some good black history content. So, time for a lecture. So, from the early 1500s to early 19th century, people from West Africa were forcibly removed from their homelands to serve as forced labor on colonial plantations in the Americas. And this created a new type of people. 
Africans. Because before coming to the Americas, the captured slaves had very different and very distinct ethnic and group identities. They might have identified as a member of a certain tribe or as an inhabitant of a specific region. They belonged to well-defined religious communities, be it practitioners of animistic religions or Islam. Upon arrival in the American colonies, all of these identities were effectively erased and replaced with one singular label, African. Regardless of what identities these people had before being captured and shipped across the Atlantic, when they arrived in the colonies, they became Africans. Over the span of the roughly 400 years that slavery existed in the Americas, 10 to 12 million people were brought into the colonies as slave labor. Uh, and this represents, to this day, the by far largest forced migration in human history. The exact estimates of how many people were abducted vary. And here's what that looked like. In the 1600s, when an inhabitant of West Africa was captured by slave hunters, they were chained to a large coffle um, and driven overland, often for days with only the bare minimum in terms of food, water, or shelter. Many people did not survive this part of the slave trade already and died of starvation and exhaustion on the way to the trading ports. Upon arrival at a port city, the people were sorted for what the slave drivers thought their individual physiques were best suited to. Most captives were loaded upon ships bound for the Caribbean sugar plantations. And the conditions on the slave ships were some of the worst human conditions in the history of the world. Um, this so-called middle passage from Africa to the Americas could last anywhere from four to eight weeks, during which the slaves were mostly kept below deck, chained to the floor, receiving again only the bare minimum in terms of food and water, just so that they would stay alive. And they would stay there for the entirety of the journey, forced to lie in their own filth, and that of their of the poor souls who shared in their lot, um, and on average one uh, one out of seven would not survive this. And many people attempted to drown themselves or find other ways to committing suicide in order to escape this fate. And slavery began early in the English colonies too. Um, we kind of tend to gloss over this uh, because twenty Africans arrived in Virginia's Jamestown. Well arrived were brought to Virginia's Jamestown in 1619, and uh, for those of you keeping score, that is before the Mayflower arrived. Um, the English had first attempted to have the native population fill their colonial labor needs, but the Spanish and Portuguese, uh, but, but like the Spanish and the Portuguese before them, the English found that the natives made for bad forced labor. Um, for various reasons, mostly that because they just could run away and escape into the forest and um, just be with their people again. Um, and during the 17th century, white indentured servants were then imported from England to supply the, the needed labor in the colonies. Um, most of the African slaves that arrived at the same time in the early half of the 17th century worked alongside white servants and workers. Until the 1670s, servants and slaves on Virginia plantations worked together, ate and slept in common quarters, and often developed intimate relationships. Also in these days, Africans in Virginia sometimes, quote-unquote, owned other Africans as indentured servants. Note, as indentured servants, not as slaves. Um... And as late as, this, uh, as 1670, servants greatly outnumbered slaves in the Chesapeake region. 
But this relationship changed quickly, and by 1700, there were more slaves than servants. And of the populations of Maryland and Virginia, 22% of the entire population total were slaves by the year 1700. The shift to black labor had a number of reasons. The English wanted to displace Dutch and Spanish, uh, the Dutch and the Spanish as major commercial powers in the Atlantic. And this brought them into the slave trade. By the 1680s, southern planters, so planters in, the, in Virginia and the Carolinas, could purchase slaves readily and cheaply, while the supply of indentured servants from uh, England was drying up. Also, African slaves proved easier to control than white indentured servants since unrest had been stirring among the white servants and the steadily growing group of landless, dis uh, discontented former indentured servants. Uh, this is because indentured servitude was something that eventually ended, and after that the people became essentially sort of free to do what, what they wanted. Um, and, well, this group ended up challenging the established white planter class. And since the white planters and aristocrats feared nothing as they feared the mob, they eventually decided to rather import people from Africa um, forcibly, then risk importing more poor white people that might end up challenging their rule. Slave life in the Chesapeake colonies was much better compared to conditions found in the Caribbean colonies. I mean, make no mistake, like it was still slavery, so it's still, you know, no walk in the park. But on the sugar plantations, the death rate among forced laborers was significantly higher. Many plantations in the Caribbean simply worked their slaves to death, since new slaves were always available. The Caribbean was also a hotbed of disease, with a large, large number of slaves dying of yellow fever basically every year. In the Chesapeake, the Englishmen grew other, uh, in the Chesapeake the Englishmen grew other labor-intensive cash crops. First of all, tobacco, and tobacco production required a lot of laborers. And African African slave labor quickly began to make up the bulk of Virginia and Maryland planter elites' labor forces. And before long, the number of slaves a planter, quote-unquote, owned became synonymous with status. And this became a pronounced social dynamic once the status of slavery changed from something more akin to indentured servitude, which had, as I said, an end point, to perpetual chattel slavery. Also, the slaves in North America, as opposed to those in the Caribbean colonies and in the South American colonies, were living alongside white laborers not held like cattle, at least for now. But slavery was not an unchanging institution. While the initial black slaves could eventually win their freedom, their rights were, were perpetually curtailed throughout the 17th century. And as slavery became more and more tied to skin color, free African Americans also lost their rights. First to own land, then to move freely, and then eventually they lost their rights to hire out their labor. And then, especially important, they lost the right to arm themselves. In the 1640s, Virginia outlawed blacks carrying firearms. And by the 1660s, marriages between white women and black servants were increasingly considered a disgrace for the white women, obviously. And this reduction of rights through official government policy reduced Africans and African Americans to the status of property through laws that became known collectively as the Black Codes. There would be more Black Codes later because we uh, America sure loves to, you know, enshrine in law uh, the, the ways that Black people are kept down. But anyway. 
colonial and town legislatures imported these legal codes from the Caribbean colonies. Through the black codes, rights of black people in North America came under increasingly stricter and stricter control. Black codes forbade Africans to testify in court, forbade them from engaging in commercial activities. They became uh, no longer legally poss- uh, legally able to hold property. They could no longer participate in politics or congregate in public. They could no, no longer travel without permission um, or could no longer legally mar- marry or have children. Um, and the biggest step of these codes was turning servitude into a lifelong and hereditary status, meaning a black child would inherit their mother's slave status, turning slavery into a self-perpetuating system, um, and essentially the lowest of low rungs on a racial caste ladder, caste ladder, I can never pronounce this word right, uh, that pushed even free blacks to the margins of colonial society. And through this, an increasingly distinct slave life and culture also developed in North America. Africans had to abandon their language and many of their customs and family structures, uh, which were completely disrupted, and any sort of social cohesion could be torn apart at the moment's notice if a slave owner decided to sell parts of his property. Yes, his property. It's not their property. It's usually men. Uh, Not usually. It's like in in the very overwhelming amount of cases it's it's men who are slave owners but that's a different story for a different uh, past inside the present slave populations varied in size throughout the colonies in uh, the north american south especially north carolina slave population rapidly grew in the 1700s reaching a ratio of three slaves for every one white person in the colony and through this south carolinian slave communities were denser and offered more opportunities to maintain african culture and customs but also, since South Carolina mainly grew rice, the slaves could continue using the agricultural skills they had acquired in their homelands. Also, in general, they had more daily contact with other Africans than they did with whites. Also, African religious practices and beliefs could easier stay alive in a dense population like this. Given the opportunity, slaves would make the practice of religion the center of their existence. In this time, uh, slaves were mostly not Christianized since their quote-unquote owners balked at the idea of engaging Christian brotherhood with black people. And also the idea of enslaving fellow Christians appeared to just too blatantly hypocritical. And this changed with the First Great Awakening in 1720, uh, in the 1720s, which also impacted African Americans. This Christian revival blended West African and Christian motive, uh, motives, stressing a personal rebirth, music, dancing, shouting, and song. And But slaves also engaged in family life and recreating kinship networks that governed African tribal culture. Many slave masters, well, quote-unquote, masters, recognized slave families as an advantage to themselves since slave families, uh, since slave family life had slaves working harder and lowered the likelihood of rebellion or escape, but also it resulted in more slaves through slave procreation. Because, again, slave was essentially a a caste marker, inheritable, perpetual, and almost impossible to shed at that point. We may say that we live in hell today, but boy howdy, if there ever were people who had a right to say this is hell, it was, and to a large extent still is, black people in America. And that concludes today's past inside the present. This is not the media.
this is hell. And you can tell because on MLK Day, on Martin Luther King Day, on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, on Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Sebastian actually mentioned the U.S. history of slavery. There's a drinking game on Martin Luther King Day that you may not be aware of where you do a shot every time you hear slavery mentioned during reports on the mainstream media on MLK, on MLK's day. And it's the only drinking game that guarantees you will stay sober. Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? And next... On Tuesday, we have the return of Rebecca Gordon, author of Mainstreaming Torture, American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes, uh, and who is now at work on a new book on the history of torture in the United States. Uh, must be very short, because torture in the United States, we don't do this. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a, it's a poem. Yeah, right. It's just right, very, right, it's, right. I think it's a haiku. Mm. Rebecca will be on to talk about her new Tom Dispatch piece, American Exceptionalism on Full Display, why this country might want to lower ex- its expectations. <laughs> and then the next day, on, who's going to be on the show? On Wednesday, we have reporter, public news, public, public record requester, yes. researcher Julia Rock joins us to discuss her article at The Lever, how Big Pharma actually spends its massive profits. New research shows that pharmaceutical companies have spent more on enriching shareholders than drug research and development over the past decade. Yeah, no Funny, kidding. I would I would have thought they would have they would have have in, invested most of that in lobbying Washington. <laughs> and uh, again, that is the lever on the first uh, show of this year. I called it the lever, and then the person from the lever corrected me and said it is the lever, not the lever. And uh, that's two people in two weeks uh, from the lever on the show. And we've never featured anybody from that uh, website in the past. So congratulations to you at the lever and uh, everybody. This is our friend, The Lever. Also coming up later this week, we will have the inaugural, or not the inaugural, the second edition of This Is Hell, or This Week in Rotten History for 2023. We'll reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have a new moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want for absolutely nothing and all you have to do is win the question from hell at our website right now or at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio um and you can see all of our stuff that you can choose from by going to this hell.com and clicking on support i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz thanks to sebastian voper for producing and for another past inside the present we told you so this is hell my demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>